Apocalypse Now, what were the problems faced by the USA in Vietnam? This is part of a two-podcast sequence in which we're going to discuss why the USA lost in Vietnam. It's one of those questions that bedevils modern history. How is it that the world's largest superpower is defeated in a land war in Southeast Asia by a bunch of people in pyjamas? How did it happen? And there's a couple of different factors you have to take into consideration. I would recommend that before you listen to this podcast, you make sure that you have listened to the one in which myself and my colleague discuss the different tactics used by the different sides, because that does have an impact on everything we're going to talk about today. So, firstly, in this first section, we're going to talk about what were the problems that America faced in Vietnam? And then, in the second podcast, we'll talk about why they left before the war had been successfully prosecuted. So what were the problems faced by the USA in Vietnam? Firstly, the quality of their troops. By which I mean, the troops sent by the USA to Vietnam generally tended to have exceptionally low morale and were very, very inexperienced. You're talking about conscripts, people who have been drafted. These are not people who have chosen to go to war. The average age of the American combatants in Vietnam was 19. 60% of American dead in the war were aged between 17 to 21. They don't have any driving ideological reason to fight. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about communism. They don't care about Vietnam. They don't even know where Vietnam is. They got on a plane somewhere in Fort Worth in Dallas, and now they've got out of a plane somewhere sweltering in the jungle, and they're being shot at. They do not want to be there, and they do not know why they are fighting. Compare that to the Viet Cong, who are fighting for their land, who are fighting for their families. And you can immediately see that there is a problem in morale and in drive. One side is definitely going to fight harder than the other. There is also a problem internally within the American military. The officers are professional soldiers who are fighting a war professionally. The men, on the other hand, are conscripts and don't want to be there. That immediately sets up a tension between the officers who are ordering the men to go and do things and the men who do not want to go and do them. And this finds its expression in the term fragging. There is evidence of enlisted men in the US military killing their own officers. The men that don't want to be there find other means of escape. In some cases, it's physical, desertion. There are over half a million recorded incidences of desertion. Not over half a million deserters because some of those are the same men running away time and time and time again. But even the ones who don't run away physically find other ways to escape. Drugs and alcohol became endemic. You're in Southeast Asia where there is easy access to opiates like heroin and it's a major place for growing cannabis. 
In order to deal with these problems of low morale, General Westmoreland, the officer in charge of the military expedition to Vietnam, makes a change. And in theory, this change is a good idea. What he does is, he reduces the term of conscription to one year. So people will come in and they will only have to serve one year and then they will go home. That makes everybody feel as though they're not there too long. And that's a good idea in terms of morale. However, in terms of practicalities, it has an issue. Just as your troops are getting to be seasoned, are getting to be experienced, are getting used to fighting this kind of a jungle war, they go home and they are replaced by a brand new draft of raw recruits who don't want to be there. It is impossible to argue that that did not have an effect on the military capabilities of the American army. Another area in which the Americans are having problems is with the neighbours of Vietnam, and this is particularly Cambodia and Laos. And the problem here is that the Ho Chi Minh Trail runs through these countries and is actually allowing supplies to reach the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. There is also the fact that the Vietnamese troops in South Vietnam, should they find themselves hard-pressed, can simply slip across the border into Cambodia and Laos where they can't be touched. And this safe haven over the border is a major problem in prosecuting the war. The next problem that the Americans faced is the loss of Vietnamese support. The idea of hearts and minds, which you've heard us talk about before, this idea of getting the Vietnamese on side and helping us out, that's a brilliant idea. But in practice, almost all of your military tactics are built around the idea of a war of attrition, mass bombing raids, defoliation, clearing areas of the jungle, basically trying to kill as many of the enemy as possible. And if that is the kind of war that you are fighting, it is inconceivable that you will not rack up a great number of civilian casualties. So the Viet Cong find it quite easy to find sympathizers who will hide them and support them against the Americans. The third problem the Americans face is some of the actions of these inexperienced and low morale troops who are put into these highly stressful situations. In that circumstance, those troops are not going to make the best decisions. One of the clearest examples of this is the My Lai Massacre. There's a podcast on this that you can listen to to get the full details. However, all you need to know for the purposes of this discussion is that a platoon of U.S. soldiers massacre the inhabitants of a Vietnamese village. And that becomes emblematic of a problem. When that is reported back in America, that starts to make people in America question the entire purpose of the war. And it also makes them start to question their picture of themselves, of their national identity. Aren't we supposed to be the good guys? Aren't we supposed to be over there rescuing these people from the evils of communism? How can that be the case if we are committing these atrocities? Of course, My Lai would not be an issue had it not been reported. Of course, the My Lai massacre wouldn't have been an issue at all had it not been reported. And this leads us to the next and possibly the most contentious of all of the issues that America faced in the war, and that is the media and how the war was reported 
at home. In the early years of the war, the media was given unrestricted access through something called the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam. Journalists who were properly accredited were allowed to go anywhere and see anything. A good example of this would be an author called Michael Hare, who wrote a book called Dispatches, based on the articles he'd written for the magazine Rolling Stone whilst based in Vietnam. He tells the story of being able to turn up at any military base anywhere in Vietnam and hop on a chopper. And if somebody was going out on patrol, he could just go with them. If they were headed to a fire base that was under siege, he could just go with them. And he could see everything that was going on, and he could hear everything that was going on, and he could simply write it down and send it back. Now, this means that a great deal of unrestricted access and a great deal of unvarnished truth is finding its way back to America. But you have to balance this up with the fact that media outlets were generally reluctant to publish anything that could be seen as undermining the war effort. An example of this is that Seymour Hirsch, the journalist who broke the story of the My Lai massacre, had to try several times to find someone who would actually publish the story. But things start to change. In 1967 and 68, there is a shift in the tone of the reporting of the war, and it starts to become more negative. And this can be explained, I think, in two ways. The first is that television news starts to overtake print news as the major news outlet. And that is quite key. There is a difference between reading about something and seeing something. There is a difference between reading about a battle and seeing a 19-year-old shot and screaming in pain on the television in your living room. And that difference really brings the war home to the people in America. The images coming directly from the battlefields really bring home what's going on over there. The second thing are the reports on the Tet Offensive. Now, the Tet Offensive we will discuss in the next podcast, but all we're interested in at this point is how it's presented at home. And it is presented at home as an unmitigated disaster. And the mouthpiece for this is the news reporter called the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite. Let's have a listen to what he said to the people living in America. To say that we are closer to victory today, is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance that military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. Now remember, Lyndon Johnson, the president, LBJ, said that if he lost... Walter Cronkite, he's lost America. And you can hear it there 
he's lost Cronkite. Admiral Sharp and General Westmoreland, both very high in the military command of the USA forces, both claimed that the media undermined the war effort. However, if this is something that comes up in your exam, the question you have to ask yourself is, did the media lead public opinion or did it only reflect public opinion. After all, by 1967-1968, public opinion has started to turn against the war. There is also the issue of how much footage that was actually shown came direct from the battlefields. How much of this violent imagery did people actually see? It's very convenient for the military to blame the media for undermining their efforts, but you have to decide whether that is historically convincing or not. The fourth major problem that the Americans faced in Vietnam was not in Vietnam, it was at home. And I think it is fair to say that long before they lost the war in Vietnam, they lost the war at home. There is already a strong protest movement in America due to some of the great social problems that they're dealing with during the 1960s. Indeed, Lyndon Johnson was elected uh, in his own right. Don't forget, he actually became president when Kennedy was assassinated. So he finished out Kennedy's term and then he stood for election. Johnson was elected in his own right with the idea of the Great Society that he would fix these social problems that are bedeviling American society. The only problem is that fixing social problems requires a great deal of cold, hard cash. And by the mid to late 1960s, almost all of the cold, hard cash the government has available is being ploughed into the war in Vietnam. Don't forget the cost of all those shells, the cost of the choppers, the cost of keeping the troops fed and clothed and equipped. So that sets the scene for a great deal of displeasure with Johnson's course of action. The areas in which that displeasure finds its largest outpouring is in two pre-existing areas of protest. The first is the civil rights movement. You have to remember that American society in the 1960s is still deeply, deeply racist. The first Kennedy administration had made great strides towards black voter registration to ensure that they were represented in the democratic process. But there are still issues, deep-seated issues, to do with education and opportunity and, and pay and many, many other issues. So the civil rights organization looks at the war in Vietnam and they see something deeply, deeply disturbing. The draft, the conscription method, predominantly targets people who are poorly educated. Because if you're at college, you can defer the draft. You can put off your conscription until you have finished your studies. But most young black men are poor and cannot afford to go to college in America. Therefore, the draft predominantly picks up young black men. It highlights the existing structural inequality in American society. And it has a knock-on effect in terms of what's happening in Vietnam. For example... 30% of African Americans were drafted versus 19% of young white Americans. 
African Americans make up 11% of the total forces in Vietnam and yet account for 22% of the casualties. This starts to look an awful lot like a form of ethnic cleansing to the civil rights movement and they start to look at the draft as being a way of killing off the young black population and so they start to protest against it. A good example of this would be Muhammad Ali, world champion heavyweight boxer, an active member of the Nation of Islam, a black rights movement group. And he had something to say when his draft card arrived. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some pro-hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. What am I going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. I'm saying you're talking about me about some draft, and all of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My name is a white people, not Viet Congs or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. And he ripped up his draft card and refused to go. It cost him his title, and it cost him his passport, but he felt it was a stand worth taking. The second place in which you find a great deal of protest is on college campuses. They've always been at the forefront of social change and of the counterculture and they take the opposition to the war and they run with it. You hear chants like hey hey LBJ how many kids did you kill today? Thousands of them begin to draft dodge uh, ignoring their draft papers when they come up. The protests reach their height during 1968 to 1970 where people are seeing the war in Vietnam as an expression of the corruption of American society, of an imperialist tendency in American foreign policy. And in this key period, this peak period of 68 to 70, there's over 100 demonstrations involving well over 40,000 students. Very often, you'll see them burning the American flag. And that's a very, very violent protest in American politics. It's actually a criminal offence. And it's a very powerful symbol of them rejecting American policy and the American government. In November 1969, there's well over half a million anti-war protesters demonstrating in Washington, D.C. The, the single biggest political protest in American history. The worst incident of this comes in 1970. At Kent State University in Ohio, students organize a demonstration against President Nixon's policy. Now, we'll talk some more about what President Nixon actually did in the next podcast, but from the point of view of these students, what he's actually done is widened the war. And so at this protest, the National Guard are called out, the National Guard being the army run by each particular state. So this is the Ohio National Guard, and they panic, and they open fire on the demonstrators. Four students are killed, and 11 others are injured. 
Now you want to talk about unfortunate media imagery? Consider that. A nation's own army opening fire on its children. And that does a huge amount of damage to the war effort and to the perception of the war in the American populace. So there you have it. America faced a few major problems in prosecuting the war in Vietnam. The neighbours of Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. The media representation of the war. Protest at home. Losing the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. And troops suffering from low morale who were very, very inexperienced. When you add all those problems together, you can see that it was always going to be very difficult for the Americans to win the war. What you need to decide is which of those factors is the most important in stopping America from winning the war. In the next podcast, we'll have a look at why America actually pulled out and how they disentangled themselves from Vietnam. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.